Uh, we have been doing something a little out of uh, character here, but I think it's been a blessing. It has been to me, and I hope it will be to you as well. We have been doing a whole book of the Bible each week, and we did the first week Genesis, then we did Exodus, then we did Leviticus, and last week we did Numbers, and now we're up to Deuteronomy. And so with Deuteronomy, we will finish what's called the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. And what we've been doing is looking at an overview of uh, these books and then seeing how they lead us to the New Testament and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 today, and I'll just be reading some of the first verses of Deuteronomy chapter 1, and then we'll be skipping around in the book to try to get a, an overall picture of what this book is about and where it's going. So, Deuteronomy chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb, by the way, of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edri, Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Reputedly, Elvis Presley's last words were, I'm going to the bathroom to read. And then he was found dead in the bathtub the next morning. Drummer Buddy Rich died after surgery in 1987. And uh, apparently, as he was being prepped for surgery, the nurse said, Is there anything you can't take? And his reply was, Yes, country music. (laughs) There was a murderer, James Rogers. He was put in front of a a firing squad in Utah, and uh, they asked if he had any last request. He said, Yes, bring me a bulletproof vest. (laughs) Steve Jobs, apparently, his last words were, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Thomas Sebeckett, Archbishop of Canterbury, died after saying, I am ready to die for my Lord, that in my blood the church may obtain liberty and peace. Ludwig van Beethoven said, Friends applaud, the comedy is finished. His uh, fellow composer, Johannes Brahms, last words were simply, Ah, that tastes nice. Winston Churchill, who had a rather eventful life, ended his days by saying, I'm bored with it all. Charles Darwin said, I am not the least afraid to die. Princess Diana said, My God, 
what's happened? Thomas Alva Edison said, it is very beautiful over there. Queen the first, Elizabeth the first, Queen of England said, all my possessions for a moment of time. Che Guevara said to the one who had come to kill him, I know you have come to kill me. Shoot, coward. You are only going to kill a man. Henry VIII, King of England, all is lost. Monks, monks, monks. Thomas Hobbes, writer from the 1600s, I'm about to take my last voyage, a great leap in the dark. Stonewall Jackson, who got shot by accident by his own men, let us cross over the river and sit in the shade of the trees. Malcolm X, who also was shot, he was shot 16 times by three men, and he said to those men, let's cool it, brothers. Karl Marx, last words. Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough already. Edgar Allan Poe, Lord help my poor soul. And then Pancho Villa, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. And then a man who was executed here in Florida, John Spenkelink, he said his last words, capital punishment. Those without the capital, get the punishment. Last words, famous last words. What do we have here in the book of Deuteronomy? Last words. That's what the whole book is. Some people get upset if a sermon lasts for more than half an hour. Deuteronomy is a sermon. And if you were to read it out loud, it would probably take two and a half hours. We're not going to do that this morning. But actually, it's three sermons. And these are Moses' last words. They were on the plains of Moab, and Moses was about to depart. He was about to leave the people he had led for 40 years. And he had some last words for them, some instructions before they went into the the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so he preached these last three sermons. The first sermon was rather short. It's chapters 1 to 4. And it is a, a review of how they got to this point. And then the longest sermon is chapter 5 to chapter 28. And here he's giving them laws so that they'll know how to live once they get into the promised land. And then chapters 29 to 32, we have a covenant renewal ceremony. Before he leaves, he's calling them to renew their relationship to the Lord. And then at the very end of the book, we have the account of Moses' death. Now, um, the first sermon, chapters 1 to 4, is a sermon about the past. The second is a sermon about the future. And then the third is a sermon for the present, renewing commitment in the present. And this sermon about the past is really tragic. If you look at the first words of Deuteronomy, it says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Param and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. Now look at verse 2. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. How long does it take? 11 days. That's Mount Horeb. Mount Sinai, where the people had been and they'd received the word of the Lord, they'd received the Ten Commandments, and to get up to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the border of the promised land, it was how long? Eleven day journey. And now look at verse 3. In the fortieth year. What happened? What happened? Well, what happened is what we saw last week in the book of Numbers. You see, they got to Kadesh Barnea, 
And the people said, Moses, let's send some spies. And so Moses said, okay, we'll send spies in the land, one from each tribe. And we heard the story last week. The spies went into the land. They said, it's a great land. It's a wonderful land. It's flowing with milk and honey, but the giants live there and we can't take it. Ten of the twelve said that. And only two said, we can take it because the Lord has promised it to us. And so because of their unbelief, because of their refusal to do what the Lord said, God said that whole generation was going to wander around in the desert for 38 more years until the whole generation died off except for the two faithful spies who were Joshua and Caleb. So these two verses, it is 11 days journey and then in the 40th year they sum up the tragedy of the story that we saw last week. The summary emphasizes two things. This summary, this first sermon, it emphasizes God's faithful and constant and consistent love for His people and the consistent rebellion of the people against God. Look at, for example, chapter 1, verse 31. It says, uh, or verse 30, The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight for you just as He did in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Then verse 33, Who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. What's he saying? God loved you in Egypt. God loved you in the wilderness. God has loved you all along. He has taken you like a son and He has carried you along. But in spite of that, you have rebelled time after time after time. Look at verse 32. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. Or jump up to verse 26. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And that's what we saw last week, right? How many of you were here last week? How many rebellions does Numbers record in the wilderness? Ten rebellions in the wilderness. Rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. That's the summary here. And Moses is reminding them of that. that. This is your past. God has loved you consistently. You have rebelled against Him consistently. And then he goes to the second sermon, which begins in chapter 5. And in this section, chapter 5 to chapter 28, we have a repetition of many of the things we've seen in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. We have a repetition of many of the laws. And we have noted, especially as we looked at Leviticus, how difficult it is to read through those books. We noticed how we we tend to cruise through Genesis, cruise through most of Exodus, tend to get bogged down toward the end of Exodus because the law code and the description of the temple and so on, and then really slog our way through through Leviticus. And then we get some relief with historical narrative in Numbers, but we still have much law code. And how many of you who have tried to do that have felt kind of bogged down and lost? And where all the, what are all these laws about? And why do we do some of these things now? Why do we, don't we do some of these things anymore? But we can look at this, and I think Deuteronomy helps us sort through the laws. And uh, Moses repeats many and then adds more. But what he does, first of all, is he repeats the moral law. And we're going to talk about three types of law. And this will help us as we're going through the law and as we get to the New Testament and trying to figure out what should we do now, what do we not have to do anymore, what has passed away, what is still uh, legitimate, what is still binding on us. And we see that the first kind of law that he talks about is the moral law. And that moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, we've already found the Ten Commandments, right? We found them in Exodus chapter. 
chapter 20. And now here, Moses is repeating the Ten Commandments. And it's almost exactly the same as we found in Exodus 20. And this is a summary of the moral law that is binding upon humans perpetually. Why? Because the moral law expresses God's unchanging character. The moral law doesn't change. It is perpetual, and it is always, and that's why it is reaffirmed in the New Testament. Then he goes on, and he repeats a number of ceremonial laws. And we saw a number of these ceremonial laws, especially in Leviticus, but also in Numbers, and these have to do with a tabernacle. Do you remember at the end of Exodus, they erected a big tent, a tabernacle in the wilderness, and then the Levites were named as the ones who were the attendants of the, the tabernacle, and the priests were selected from the sons of Aaron, Aaron and his sons, and they ministered in the tabernacle, and they offered uh, sacrifices, they offered, you remember, the, the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the guilt offerings and the sin offerings and the peace offerings and all those ceremonial laws. And then we saw the Sabbath regulations, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, the Jubilee year, and then the sixth annual feast and all that. And much of that is repeated here in, uh, in Deuteronomy. And then we also have the civil law. The civil law. They were about to become a political nation. They were about to move into their own territory. They were nomads up to this point. They were slaves. Then they were nomads, wanderers. They were about to move into their own territory and become a political nation. So what does a nation need? It needs laws. What did the pilgrims do before they landed at Mayflower? They, they made a compact, didn't they? They said, once we get there, we need to talk before we get there about how we're going to operate. What kind of rules are going to guide us? And this was the civil law. You are about to become a nation. And so here are the laws that God is giving you as a political entity to guide the nation. And if we look at these uh, these laws, they have to do with things like property rights, boundaries, inheritances, courts, etc. Things that they didn't need in the desert because they were wandering nomads. Now they're going to have property. Now there were going to be boundaries. Now there are going to be disputes. How are you going to settle those disputes? And what we find in this Deuteronomic law, this, this civil law, this law for, a, for a, a country, are two things, basically, that jump out. One, strict justice for lawbreakers. Punishment for lawbreakers. And, and you can look, for example, at chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, uh, verses 18 to 20, there was no coddling of lawbreakers. Um, If you look at uh, 16, 18 to 20, it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. How many of you would like like to live in a country that operates that way. Right? Justice and only justice. So that stands out. That stands out. But another thing that stands out... Oh, by the way, there was justice all the way up to capital punishment. And there was the worst kind of capital punishment, which was uh, being hung on a tree. 
For example, if you look um, at chapter 21, it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, it's 21-22, he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the justice was very, very strict. But there was another side to Deuteronomy, and that was this. There was mercy, there was liberality, there was kindness and generosity to those who were in need. And that is, the, the law is shot through with that as well. So there's strict justice for the lawbreaker, but there was also great liberality and generosity to the needy. And there are three groups that are mentioned time after time. The sojourner, or the, the, uh, the, the foreigner, the orphan, or the fatherless, and the widow. And there are many, many provisions. Let's just look at uh, uh, one or two of those. If you go to chapter 15, for example, uh, verses 7 and 8, we find this, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Generosity, liberality. Uh, Look ahead at chapter 24, for example, verses 14 and 15. 24, 14 and 15, and we hear this. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And then if you look at verse 17, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there, therefore I command you to do this. So two aspects jump out. Strict justice for the lawbreaker and abundant generosity and liberality for the needy. But even with this this repetition, oh by the way, that's why it's called Deuteronomy. Deutero means second, and nomos is the, the Greek word for law. So what is it? It's the second law or the second giving of the law. So it's an appropriate name. Repetition. But in addition to the repetition, there's some new things. And let me just highlight a few of those new things. One is this. There would be a central place to be worshipped. A central place to be worshipped. And God would choose that place. The people were not to worship wherever they wanted to. They were to worship where God designated. Now, this becomes... A, a very important uh, aspect in the history of Israel. Because when they went into the land where the Canaanites and all the other tribes were, where did those people worship? They worshipped wherever they wanted to, and they tended to worship on hilltops. These were called, understandably, high places. And so, uh, the, uh, the, the, the order was, when you go into the land, don't worship on the high places. That's where the pagans worship their idols and their false gods. Tear those down. Don't worship on those high places, but worship in the place where the Lord has uh, designated. Now, this is very important because if, uh, if you read through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, we have all of the kings of, of Israel and Judah. And all of them are judged according to whether or not 
they took down the high places or allowed there to be worship in the high places. So, uh, this is a very important command of centralized worship according to God's commandment. There is also, uh, there were new laws about two offices. Leviticus focused on which office? It focused on the priest. It focused on the priest. But there would be two offices, two other offices, that would come into play in the history of Israel. And those are the prophet and the king. They didn't have a king yet. They had Moses. But eventually they would have a king. And so, before they have a king, God lays down rules for how the king should rule. In chapter 17. And then also, what about the prophet? Um, They had Moses, who kind of summed up uh, many of the functions. He was a prophet, and he also wasn't a king, but he was a, a ruler, a leader. But once he's gone, these these responsibilities would be divided. The the sons of Aaron would be the priests, uh, helped by the Levites. And uh, then uh, the, eventually David and his sons would be the kings. And then God would raise up prophets. But there's one verse that's very uh, interesting, and it comes into play in the New Testament. It's in chapter 18. And here it's talking about the prophet. And if you look at chapter 18, verse 18, Moses, rather, God said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. So there was this promise that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. Guess, guess what the people of Israel did ever since then? They were on the lookout for whom? The prophet like Moses. And when somebody would rise up, they'd say, is this the prophet? Is this the prophet? Is this the prophet like Moses? Now, um, let's go back to chapter 6, because I've given you some details of the commandments, but I want to spend a little time on chapter 6, because this really gets at the heart of what's going on in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, what we have here is the basic statement of faith of Scripture. So if you, if you want to get the basic statement of, of what Scripture teaches, it's right here. And it begins in chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and uh, that your days may be long. Okay, you see, he's preparing them. You're going into the land, I'm preparing you, giving you the commandments so that you'll know how to live when you get there. And your children will as well, and their children, and so on. Then, in verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. So is this for their, for their good, or in order to restrict them? It's for their good. He's saying, I'm giving you these laws so that it might go well with you when you get to the land. Now we get to verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the the here. And, and, and pious Jews would recite this and do recite this daily. The basic statement of faith is in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
the Lord is one. That's the basic statement of faith of the Bible. That there is one Lord, there is one God. And it calls us then, if we are His people, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. And we already read in the New Testament when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What did He quote? He quoted this verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one, we already saw saw where that came from. Do you remember? That came from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it emphasizes that these commandments are for Israel's good. They are not for Israel's destruction. They are for Israel's good. And it calls those of us who are parents to pass these commandments on from generation to generation in a natural way that our, that our families and that our homes be so full of God's Word that our, our children are raised up in the context of God's Word. And it is second nature to them as uh, they hear it and they see it uh, day by day constantly in the context of the family. And the background... The background of this call to obey God's God's commandment is God's favor towards Israel. If you look at verse 10, it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. What's he saying here? God's the one who rescued you. And He's about to give you even more. You are about to go have wonderful things that you did not acquire yourself. God gave them to you. But when you have all those wonderful things, don't forget the Lord. There was a a preacher in the early days of the colonies uh, that are now the United States, Cotton Mather, and he saw how these uh, pilgrim people came to the colonies and, and many of them wanted religious freedom to practice the faith and, and many of them did that uh, here uh, in our colonies. But he said, um, religion begat wealth and wealth ate the mother. The child ate the mother because he saw even in his day that the, the people as they began to prosper they began to do exactly what Moses warned them about. They began to forget the one who had given them all that they had received and acquired. In the following chapters, in the following chapters, chapter 7, chapter 9, Moses emphasizes, or God emphasizes through Moses, that he did not do these things for the people because they were better than other people. He says, I didn't do this because you were more numerous, and I didn't do this because you were more righteous. Let's see why he did all these things for Israel. Look at verse uh, chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's what he did. Now he explains why he did it. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you catch what he did there? He said, why did the Lord choose you? It was not because you were a bigger deal than the other nations. Actually, you were not a big deal at all. You were least significant among the nations. He said, why did the Lord love you? And the answer was, because He loved you. Because He loved you. You say, that's a circular argument. No new information given. He didn't explain, right? But think about it. There could not be a deeper answer than that, could there? Think about, maybe a wife is feeling a little bit insecure uh, because her husband hasn't expressed his love sufficiently. And so she says, Honey, why do you love me? Why do you love me? And the husband may go down this trail, and it, it may work for a little while, but then it will cause greater insecurity. He may say, Because you're the most beautiful woman on the planet. And that may... That may feel pretty good in the moment, or you're the most intelligent, or you're the the most interesting, or you're the most fun, or whatever it might be. But then she starts thinking, but what if I get old, and I'm not the most beautiful after all? Or, Or what if I get sick, and somehow I'm disfigured? Or what if I get in an accident? And if my husband's love for me is based on this characteristic in me, what if I, what if my mind starts to slip? What if I'm not able to be so much fun anymore because I can't get around like I used to? Then what will become of of my husband's love for me? Do you see the problem with that? Basing love in the characteristics of the other? But what if the husband says this? Try this on, ladies. What if the husband simply looks at his wife and says, Honey, I love you because I love you. Will that work? Yeah? Do you like that? Try that, guys. See what happens, right? Okay, if she, if she thinks about that for a little while, she'll say, that's what I wanted to hear. Because that's unchanging. That's not based on something that might change in me. That's a given fact. And that's what he's saying here to Israel. He's saying, Israel, do you know why I do this, this for you? Do you know why I do all this for you? Why I did this for you? Why I do this for you? I do it because I love you. And why do I love you? I love you. Because I love you. That's the message of Deuteronomy. And that's the message of Scripture as well. And then he, he, he emphasizes that even more. In chapter 9, verse 4, he says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, that He may confirm the word word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see the same thing. He's saying, be careful. When you go into the land, you have all these great things that the Lord's given you, you might get puffed up and say, I got these things because I'm better than other people. And He says, no, you're not better. They were just worse. 
So don't start thinking of yourself as better. It's just that I wanted to deal with them because of their wickedness, and I used you to deal with them, but don't get puffed up because I didn't choose you because you were righteous. So you see the message here? He loves His people because He loves His people. Now, there's a combination that runs through Deuteronomy of two ideas. And the people had trouble getting these ideas, and Christians today have trouble getting these two ideas and keeping these two ideas together. The two ideas are these. The only reason God blesses you is because of His love. That's the first idea. The second idea is this. If you obey God's commandments, God will bless you. Okay? Those two ideas run all through Deuteronomy, and they run all through Scripture. So the first idea, why does God bless you? Because He wants to. Because He loves you. That's the only reason. Nothing in you. Only in Him. But then there's the second idea. If you obey God's commandments, He will bless you. And what happens is we tend to get confused and we think about that second one and we think the reason for His blessing me is because I am so obedient. But that's not the idea here. The idea here is these laws are God's ways. And if you walk in God's ways, they are the ways of abundance and blessing and joy. It's not because you have somehow earned His blessing but you have simply gone in the blessing of His ways that He has provided. Now, let's think about this. These two ideas can go together and they're not contradictory. Let's think about a father adopting a son. He adopts a baby son. Why does the father adopt that baby, that infant, that newborn son? Because that infant son is so successful. He's a baby. Because that... That, that, that baby is so clean? He's not. Because that baby is so obedient? He's not obedient. Because that baby is so easy to take care of? No, he's actually a lot of work. Why does that father who adopts that son adopt that son? If you would ask him, he would say, because I love him. I love him. And then... And then going on in life, if you'd ask that father, why do you feed this son? Why do you educate this son? Why do you clothe this son? Why do you provide medical care for this son? He would keep giving you the same answer over and over and over. And he would say, because I love him, because I love him, because I love him, and because I love him. So why does the father bless the son? Because he loves him. But let me ask you this. What will be the way, the lifestyle of most blessing for that son? Rebellion against the father or obedience to the father? The answer is obvious, isn't it? That son will walk in the way of blessing if he walks in the way of obedience. Does that change the love of the father? No. The father's love is fixed. Does that change how pleasant the life of the Son is? Yes, it does. So you see, it's not contradictory to say that God loves us because He loves us and He blesses us because He He loves us. And to say at the same time, if we want to enjoy His blessings to the maximum, 
We need to obey His commandments. We same, find this same pattern in the New Testament. If somebody tries to sell you on the idea that Old Testament law, New Testament love, then take them to 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, 4 and 5. I'm sorry I didn't write down the, the, the page number in the Bibles that are available to you, but in 1 John chapter 4, Verse 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Who took the initiative there? God took the initiative. Who's the one that started the love? God. God doesn't love us because we love Him. John says, on the contrary, we love Him because He first loved us. And how do we know that He first loved us? Well, there are many manifestations, but the maximum manifestation is this. He sent His Son into the world. Not looking at us and saying, oh, these are the most deserving to receive My Son. On the contrary, looking at us and saying, these are the ones who desperately need My Son, and if they don't have My Son, they will surely perish. He sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sin offering that turns away God's just anger against us. That's the initiative. That's the love that He sets upon us. And if we ever are doubting God's love, if like the wife that might have been doubting the husband's love, if we're ever doubting God's love, then all we need to do is look at the cross. That's the argument here. God set His love upon us by sending His Son into the world. Now, if you look down at chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Because that, they're that, that, that path of blessing, they're that path of joy and that we find as we conform our lives to His commandments, His moral law, we find that we're walking in the path of blessing. Our, does He love us because we're doing such a good job of walking in that path of blessing? No! He loves us because He loves us. And how do we know that? He sent His Son but does He want to pour more blessing onto our lives that they might be joyful, happy lives? He has given us His law that we might express our love to Him by obedience to that law. Now that's the second. And that's the longest. Don't worry. That's the longest sermon. Okay? So that's the the, the second sermon, the longest sermon. Love the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Why? Because He first loved you and He rescued you. The third sermon. Chapters 29 to 32. Moses told them that after they enter the promised land, they should divide the tribes. Twelve tribes, two mountains Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. Six tribes go up on one mountain, six tribes go up on the other mountain. And then you stand there and you have, have, the, have the law read. And when the law is read, they would read the cursings of the dis, uh, for the disobedient and the blessings for the obedient. 
and on the, the one mountain they would say amen to the curses, and on the one mountain, the other mountain, they would say amen to the blessings. It would be this, this ceremony that they would have. But they had their own ceremony even then while Moses was still alive. And um, he concluded with a dramatic call. Let's hear the end of Moses' sermon. He called them to renew the covenant. And then in chapter 30, he comes to his conclusion of his sermon. Verses 15 to 20. And this call is a call to choose life over death. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. That's the end of the message. That's the point of Deuteronomy. God loves you because He loves you. God has given you His law to bless you further. So choose life. Don't choose death. Now, Unfortunately, Moses was pretty pessimistic when he came to the end. In verse 31, verse 24, it says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? So he wasn't optimistic about them choosing life instead of choosing death. And then in the last chapter after Moses had taught them a song, and after he had blessed the tribes for a final time in chapter 33, we have the poignant story of the death of Moses. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb, the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he was... He buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, 
The son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It's a sad ending to this book and to these five books, but there are a couple notes of hope. Moses is gone, but Joshua... Joshua Joshua is taking his place to lead the people into the land that God has promised them. And did you notice that it says here in verse 10, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses? Do you remember that promise? That there would be a prophet like Moses that would arise? And the people ever since then were looking for that prophet. And when we get to the New Testament, they were still looking for that prophet. And when John the Baptist burst onto the scene and started preaching in the wilderness, they asked him, Are you, they didn't ask him, are you a prophet? That was clear. They asked him, are you the prophet? And he said, I'm not the prophet. I'm the one who who prepares in a wilderness the way for the Lord. And then when Jesus came, they wondered if he might be the prophet. And some some of them asked him that, and those were actually right. He was the prophet, as Peter confirms to us in chapter 3 of Acts. He was the one that God raised up, a prophet like Moses, a prophet who knew God face to face. But he was actually more than a prophet. He was more than the prophet. He was the great high priest, as we saw in the book of Leviticus, the one who offered himself for the sins of the people. He was the king, the son of David, who reigns over his people in love. So he was the three offices of the Old Testament wrapped up into one, prophet, priest, and king. He was the obedient one who fulfilled all the law. He obeyed the moral law, every aspect of it, never transgressing it. He abolished the ceremonial law, the temple and the the sacrifices and the priests by fulfilling all of that in His own death on the cross. And He did away with the civil law for the nation of Israel because now Israel has become more than just a a single nation, but in, in involves all of the nations on the planet. And He also was the one on whom that terrible curse of Deuteronomy fell. Do you remember that curse? Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And Paul tells us that He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So He took all of the curses of the book of Deuteronomy for all of those who believe in Him. So what's the message to us today? The message to us today is the same as Moses' conclusion to the people, my friends, before us today has been set life and death. So choose life. Don't choose death. Choose life by believing in Jesus Christ, the One who was sacrificed for us, the One who is prophet, the One who is priest, the One who is king, the One who was cursed for us. Choose life by believing in Him. And also choose life by walking in the good ways that He has prepared for you. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this this book that 
calls us once again to choose life. We thank You that You have put before us life. Oh God, we all want life. And I pray for all of us here that we would choose life by receiving Christ by faith, the One who died for us and rose for our life, our eternal life. And I pray, O God, that day by day, those of us who call ourselves believers in Christ, that we would walk in the way of the commandments that You have given us, that we might further choose life and choose blessing, not only for ourselves, but for our children and our children's children and for all around us. O God, may we choose life today and every day. Thank You, O God, for Christ who is prophet, who is priest, who is king, who is the one who obeyed the law and who took the curse of the law for us. In Him and in Him alone we find life. We pray this in His name. Amen.